So if a business has taken on $10 million, $20 million, $30 million of funding, and it doesn't even yet have a product in market, and it's still got to hire its team, that is a lot of money to put in the hands of a business at that stage. But the reality is, is you've got Web3 founders and management teams that are trying to handle large sums of money, and they're not yet at a stage where they should be doing it. And then the money gets frittered away and wasted. Hello and welcome to PolyWeb. I'm your host, Saralandi Tortoli, and my guest today is Amar Mystery, CFO of Landvolt. In this episode, we talk about the economics of Web3, from raising capital in a bear market to how to design tokenomics with the actual utility. So please enjoy this conversation with Amar Mystery. Before we move on, a quick disclaimer. None of this discussion constitutes financial advice and the opinion expressed are our own and not representative of the land balls view. Remember that cryptocurrency can go up and down in value, so you should always do your own research. And with that, enjoy the episode. Amar, welcome to Polyweb. Thank you very much. I'm very excited to be here. Thank you. And... Yeah, thank you for accepting the invitation. And actually, congratulations on the round that you just closed for, for Landvolt. Yeah, we are all very, very excited and very hyped about being able to close a funding round in a very difficult environment. Yeah, and, and for sure, you're going to tell us more about that. Uh, but maybe for, for folks who are listening, um, can you describe very briefly what's Landvolt uh, and uh, what's your role in the company as the CFO? Yeah, sure. Well, happy to. So, so Landvolt is the builder of metaverse experiences. So we're the largest builder in the world. We uh, work on any platform. Uh, we work for any brands. And yeah, we've been building now for two and a bit years so we've done lots of different activations uh, which effectively amounts to games aside from the bespoke builds and things that we do we're also working on tools for the metaverse for the for the wider public so we describe it as like the met the the wordpress moment for the internet and this is this is the moment where anybody can come in and create a metaverse experience without having to uh, engage expensive third-party providers. So that's that's what we are. That's what we're doing, and we're happy that we've just closed an extension to our Series B funding round. Yeah, uh, and like with the current market condition, I mean, let's face it, uh, uh, metaverse right now it's not anymore old rage, right? Uh, it's not anymore the the next big thing with, uh, you know, AI and chat GTP and uh, all the innovation that we've seen going on, uh, you know, in that direction. So I imagine that closing around uh, in such a market condition uh, might, have been, might have been challenging. Yeah, it's, it definitely was. I mean, you, you're absolutely right. Fundraising a year ago for a metaverse project is a completely different story. But for us, I guess we will, we still see the value what we're trying to build, right? We know that the metaverse isn't just about virtual reality or augmented reality. We see the benefits of the creative economy and, uh, and how the blockchain can enable different distributions of wealth. And that's really what we're, we're playing for here. 
what does that mean going out to raise money is difficult but like we, we we would talk to people and you could see people switch off when you say crypto when you say metaverse uh which is just it's not easy right I was talking through some of the team internally around how other businesses, it's so easy to explain what they do because they don't have to focus on the technical component of what they do. But for us, we're partly technical and then we've also got this this more tangible game builder fragment to what it is that we do. So we, we spoke to lots of people, but those that still, investors that still buy into and believe in Web3 as a project, it's not a, it's not a challenge. If anything, you get to really socialize and galvanize the opportunity for those that aren't interested in the space they're really not going to be now so what yeah and maybe maybe then we can take this direction and uh it's a good moment to ask you what are investors uh, looking for at this stage in in a what three company so for example if we think about metrics uh, what sort of metrics uh, do they want to see that are good indication for them, you know, that it's the time to invest? And maybe based on your experience, uh, how is it different raising uh, for a Web3 company compared to a Web2 company? Yeah, well, so I, I guess if we start with what does an investor always look for that I means it's return on investment that's that's still the case whether you're web 2 or web 3 they're still going to look for a return on their investment i guess the profile is different when you're thinking about web 3 to web 2 so you'd be thinking of high risk because it's a techno it's a nascent technology who really knows what direction it's going to go in and what it might what it might become to be so therefore the reward should be higher so when we've gone out to market now we some of the the, the metrics, the KPIs of, of what any Web2 business would know, or what Web2 businesses I've represented in the past would know. There are things like revenues, there are things like yeah, client acquisition costs, there are things like gross profits, uh, any points of traction. So transactional activity, the user acquisition numbers, these these sorts of galvanizing metrics where you can point to something and go, look, last month it was X and it's growing 200% this month so we're going in the right direction. Those metrics are still relevant. Those metrics are still being looked at. So I, I, we didn't, from some perspective, I didn't see any difference there. But when we were going out, the challenge, I think, is that, as, as I spoke to earlier, when we mention metaverse, it's it's a switch-off moment. I can almost hear myself saying it over and over again because it's almost the only way I see to describe our business. So we're trying to find other ways to make it more palatable. And that isn't to lessen the what the, the metaverse represents. It's just understanding that right now, if you're placing investment into a business, metaverse is not hot space, not to the masses anyway. Um, so what made, makes it different in going out to, to raise money? Well, I guess it's the, the catchment is a little bit smaller. Raising money in the past, you could get a list of 100 plus investors or VCs relatively quickly and you could get conversations with a lot of those especially with the pedigree of what we have on our uh, cap table and things. So that catchment was a bit smaller. Um, trying to get people to understand what the value of the technology could be down the line was harder because the points of traction are less. So an investor was looking at us and saying, well, actually, I want to see traction if you're going to give me the return that I'm looking for. But our traction is less because the volume of users and activity in the metaverse is less. So you, you're trying to get a, a reframing of that risk-reward dynamic. So... Um, 
Yeah, I th- so I think I think that's how I would summarise this. I'd say that we've got a smaller catchment of uh, target investors, and we've got metrics that that are, are not perhaps in the catchment that you might imagine if you're doing a Series B, Series C round. The revenue is probably be described as a bit higher, but the potential of the technology is much much faster, much bigger. I'm curious to know, you know, as the as the CFO of a Web three company. What's your job like and how is it different uh, compared to what you were doing in Web 2, considering that in Web 3 you have an additional element uh, that it's not available for Web 2 companies, that, that is tokenomics? Yeah, well, what's, what's it like? In, in some ways, it's, uh, it's great fun, right? You're... You're working with a, a a group of frontierists, right? We're all trying to sort of break new ground and, and create something that isn't there. And I know like you can say that at most tech companies, but it does feel different in a Web3 business because everything changes day to day, week to week. And that's not necessarily true of uh, other businesses that may be building tech or app in Web2. Not diminishing what they're doing, but I, I do think that's different. And I've worked in both. So, so what what is it like? So, I guess if you if you imagine or if you care to imagine what a CFO's role might be, uh, a CFO is, works on a spectrum of compliance and strategy. So, at one end, compliance is managing tax, it's managing risk, it's managing uh, regulations, anything that a, a company is doing that has any sort of red tape around it. A CFO has that on their spectrum. It's, understandings and deliverables it's, it's their lookout on the other end you have strategy right which is what's the business plan what's the business model what are, how are we making our money how could we optimize that how are we funding this this proposition how are we um looking to take this to new markets how are we going to sell this business that's the spectrum of a cfo in, in my view so you have this compliance suit to strategy when you come into a web3 business you're you're fully loaded on both ends of that spectrum. Now, to give to put some perspective to that, if I, being a CFO in a Web2 business, what tends to happen is the compliance is understood, it's known. You know what it is. Everyone knows what, what the tax requirements are, what the compliance requirements are. You know all those things, right? So what tends to happen is you bring in a financial controller who covers that. And then as a CFO, you spend your your life, your world in the, the, the strategy, which is good fun, right? That's like the... The bit where you're talking to investors and you're pushing boundaries and you try to sort of create opportunity, but in Web three you've got you have to do both, and there is layers to this. So I guess I was thinking this through actually. So what is what is my day look? Right? So on the one hand, I've spent my time uh, working out how, how to reconcile transactions that have come from a block. Now, why is that difficult? Well. Blockchain transactions are anonymized, uh, whereas bank transactions aren't. You know who sent them. So you have to have mechanisms, tools to, to do that reconciliation. Now that, for any CFO that may, may be listening, would understand that's not a very interesting task. That's not what you, you climb the ladder for, is to be doing reconciliations. But in Web3, you have to. You have to. Somebody's got to get into that. And it's not like going into a, a shopping list or an app store, lots of different things that you could use to facilitate that. And then on the other end of that spectrum, we've got things that we've taken a token to market. So this is then looking at, okay, well, what does that mean? Right? 
how do you take a token into the market? Where do, where do you set it up? What does the financials that sit behind it? What are the, the regulators thinking and doing with that? So that becomes a really uh, interesting catchment actually for me. And then on the other side, I spend my time working with a management team that are trying to build and grow a business. So it's looking at what we're currently doing and looking at ways that we can optimize that and how can we build on what we've already got. So that's the spread. But it's made it's made hard in Web3, not just because you're covering both and spectrum, but you also you also have this this fundamental challenge, right? Which is uh if you go out to a third party for support in a Web2 business, so whether that be an audit partner, or an advisory partner, PKBC, KPMG, those, those like, you'll be able to get access to those people, usually because you've got a big marquee fundraise behind you and everybody wants to work with you. Now, we've got a big marquee fundraise behind us, but when we've gone out to those same parties, we don't pass the scrutiny of the risk committee because we're a metaverse business. We have transactions that come into our business that are crypto transactions. So not only is it challenging to cover both ends of the spectrum, but then you're also trying to do this in a manner where you don't have the the, the normal backdrop of this army of really qualified, experienced people sitting behind you. So, so it's tough. <laughs> it's tough, but it's fun. It's uncharted territory. Yeah, yeah it's well, definitely it, that. Well, let's put it like this. I'm curious uh, how... How do you manage this challenge, you know? And uh, going back for one second uh, to to crypto transaction and the fact that part of your revenues are, are generated in, in crypto. How do you handle this in a way that makes it uh, palatable? Palatable? Palatable. Yeah. How do you, how do you say that? Palatable. Sorry. Yeah. Okay. I wanted to be fancy. <laughs> okay so how do you handle this uh in a way that is then palatable for uh, for investors uh, or you know for for other people that are interested uh in the company or to get the help that that you need yeah that, well it's a, it's a fantastic question because holding any crypto on your balance sheet aside from the accounting uh requirements or understanding that you need to have to be able to hold the digital assets there is the risk component to it and i'll, I'll major more on the risk because i think the accounting part is a bit dull to be honest but the, the on the risk side it's so volatile right so if you're receiving all of your your payments in in crypto and that that currency drops 10 20 30 percent which has been seen before then all of a sudden you're losing significant volumes of, of cash flows right so what we've tended to do from our end is to try and minimize that risk. And going back to that sort of compliance and, and strategy spectrum, this is the sort of the, the area that sits on the compliance end, which is minimizing the risk. So we didn't take investment to to be managing a, a portfolio of crypto companies. We took investment to build a tech business, which means that what we have to do is make sure we have enough proceeds to be able to build that tech business. So from our end, what would I do, well, what we do internally is we do hold some exposure to crypto because we're using it it's um it's it's liquid we've got payments that are going out in the same same currency but we're not holding all of our cash in in a crypto that would just be for me that just just seems reckless for any business that's taking institutional cash yeah 
Like, do you convert them uh, in uh, stable coins, or or do you actually take them out of the of crypto, you know, and convert them to fiat? So we we do a bit of both. So we have we well, we certainly convert any any uh, mainstream crypto into into stable coins, definitely. Uh, so we would do that on a regular basis, month to month. But then the majority of what we hold is is within fiat. Yeah, yeah, and I guess we've seen that also. You know, stable coins are not exactly immune to risk recently. Well, that and that's a funny story, even in that spectrum. As I talked to you earlier about not being able to sort of get into get into certain institutions, well. We we had the the good fortune of being turned down by a Silicon Valley bank because we were transacting crypto. So <laughs> that was uh, oh. on our part. Oh, that that was uh, in retrospect that that was good luck. <laughs> yeah, yeah, quite. We didn't quite see it the same at the time, but um, but yeah, it's it's a it's a volatile space. Yeah, we we you get the you get the dents from every aspect of the economy i think with crypto although at the minute we're in a positive swing with bitcoin and ethereum and that does tend to benefit the the community as a whole lot yeah yeah lots of things are going are going on uh, at the moment internationally but i want to draw back attention to one aspect uh, that you mentioned uh, is one of your of your tasks if you want to as a as a cfo which is that of uh tokenomics design and i'm super fascinated by this topic so like feel free to expand the way you want with this question but broadly speaking how do you do you launch a token and how do you design the the tokenomics it's, itself Yeah, absolutely. And I and I love this space personally. It's one that's really sort of piqued a lot of interest for me. And and I'm happy to share um my experience and the approach that we've taken to our to our own token uh, matter. So I guess that yes for me I see that see this as two things, right? So you've got the, the corporate structure, which is uh, effectively what's the legal home for the token. And then you've actually got the the financials, how you manage managing the actual value of the token itself. So from a corporate structure perspective, the first thing you're you're having to do is you're trying you're trying to determine whether the token that you're creating is a security or not. And you don't have to look far, do many Google searches to see that this is just a hot topic for for any Web3 project. And, the SEC and whether they're clamping down and pinching and trying to crush the, the 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 Web3 community. But fundamentally, there is a test called the Howey test and you have to determine whether your token is which side of the, the line you are on the Howey test. The Howey test basically says, are you receiving investment of money in a common enterprise and is there an expectation of profit that will be derived from others? That's the Howey test. And if you are, then that means that actually what you've created is a security, which sounds all very simple and easy, right? Except when you actually apply that definition, it's easy for almost any token you create to be a uh, security. Now, the minute that your token becomes a security, then you get into this space where, okay, the best way for you, place for you to house that token is offshore. 
So rather than have it onshore in the US or the UK or, or any other jurisdiction, you take it offshore and you put it into a foundation, which is what we've done and which is what a lot of Web3 projects do. So they they set up their, their tokens legal home offshore in a foundation and that's where it exists to be. Um, and then what tends to happen, the structure tends to be that there's a, a servicing arrangement from that offshore entity back to an onshore entity in whichever jurisdiction they're working. There's lots of other layers and things where if you're getting into the US, but that's just the, the, the premise of the structure. Now, what I've just described to you there in 30 seconds has taken months of back and forth and reviews and debates over product design and token design because it's just not that straightforward. And the reason to say that is because, but personally, I, I do follow a lot of the, the news and things that are coming through from the regulators and what's going on across the spectrum uh, with the SEC and the like, because it's not clear. It's not clear what we should be doing from a regulatory perspective. So what you end up doing is every time there's a, there's a movement, a twitch, uh, a news update around the SEC are going out now pursuing lots of different businesses that previously didn't fall under the catchment of what was seen to be a security and now they're being pursued all of a sudden that changes your risk spectrum and then you have to look at it again. then you have to redesign again iterate again, before you've even done anything um and it's just not helpful because it, even just having some definition or some clarity would make a lot of sense but we just don't have it and i'm not the only one that's talking to this space with lots of web3 cfo communities where this is a hot topic of debate but that's the first thing anyway, like if you're going to launch a token, what's the legal home for the token? That's the one area. And there is actually, contrary to what I've just said around third party support, there are some um, pretty good corporate service providers, legal advisors that, and tax advisors that, that have got good coverage on it. I'm happy to share in the, any of the notes and things like that one. On the other end, then you have the financial model. And this is where you get into how you're pricing your token and Fundamentally, the, the, the price of your token is linked to the volume of supply. So tokenomics is, is all about how you're staging, how many, how many tokens you're going to have in, in circulation. So your total market supply, what would that look like? So that's one thing. And then the other point is, when are you releasing them? Because what you're trying to do is you're trying to create these triggers for your releasing tokens at key trigger points when the activity volume is high. So if you've got more people coming in to buy and you're releasing a bigger supply, that's not going to have a, a negative effect on your price. So that's what you try to engineer with, with the actual financial model that sits behind the token. But it's I, I spend lots of time talking to lots of different people on the financial models that go to boot with this. And I've got a model that I use my own. I've seen some different ones. But there isn't really what I've seen is like a tried and tested yet. And, but that's what, to me, makes it so interesting because... The principles people generally understand, but how they're actually creating it is is just very different. And as somebody that's always enjoyed um, playing around with an Excel model, it just creates a new space to get into. So, yeah, it's good fun. Um, I love that. So many things to deep dive now. I have so <laughs> many notes already. Okay, I'm excited. Let's dive deeper. So... First of all, uh, like a background question that maybe I should have asked you to begin with. Yeah. It's what's the purpose of launching a token? Given that you raise money, you know, through VCs already. So what's yeah. the purpose of uh, launching a token in general, but 
especially in your case, of course. Yeah, and this this is a fantastic question, right? Because in it, it, days gone by when we had the ICO craze going backwards, it, it, you'd launch a token because it's a way to generate and raise capital. Now, as you rightly point out, for us, that's not what, why we've done this. The, the token itself has real utility. And if when you're going through your design, again, such, such a neatly pointed question, when you go through your design, one of the reasons we've spent so long in design of the token is because we've been trying to get the use case of it built out and be clear that there is a use case. So we don't want to build a token that has no value or benefit beyond just being able to be sold for a value or raise some money. So our, our token, what it fundamentally does is it allows builders of the metaverse to mint experiences. That's the, it's the simplest way to put it. It's Right now, if you were to go onto an on-chain Metaverse platform, you you can buy digital land, and that's a, that's a, an NFT, right? It's on-chain. But if you build an experience on it, it's not. The experience itself is not on-chain. What um, the Terra does is it brings those experiences on-chain. And what's really important about that is that that's what opens up the new economies. So if you've got a, a minted experience, those that contribute to the development of those experiences can benefit directly from any revenues that the experience creates. That wouldn't be the case previously. Like you couldn't, if you couldn't, you couldn't directly get involved in, in any revenues generated there. So that was first one of the big things that we've sort of batted around and debated. Look, is there other ways to do this? Is there more economical ways? We don't have to go out and raise a token. And the reason I said that is because also having a token isn't, this isn't a cakewalk. This is not easy stuff, right? The process you go through, the fees that you spend to set all, these, all this up, and then the ongoing running costs of that token, it's, it's not simple. It's not simple stuff. And it's new, new territory, which means it comes with a, a risk profile of its own. Regulations could change. The appetite of even off-chain um, token validations could could move shift so we create this risk for ourselves and we have to make sure we're doing it for the right reason a follow-up question then uh, what what you said uh, before is that basically designing to economics is a balance between demand and supply right yeah. uh, and uh, what fascinated me always about the topic of tokenomics is uh yeah, basically, you get to design a sort of currency, somewhat, right? So, and you mentioned that also you developed kind of your own model uh, to do that. So, I wonder if you will be open to share uh, what what your model looks like and how to balance uh, demand with supply in a way that you know preserve the value of the token, but still provide enough uh, enough service at the same time. The Excel modeling behind it's not so much the complicated stuff, actually. It's but what you're trying to understand is you're you're trying to plot when you think there'll be value triggers in your token's life cycle. So if you were to release new equity in an existing business you'd probably time that around certain points in your business life cycle. You've hit a peak year or you're about to go through a particular event or whatever that might be, you, you'd time. But in, in the, the way that the tokens work, it doesn't really, it's not really the same thing. You're sort of trying to plot it and plot forward and you're trying to think about how, many, how much liquidity that you want to create at a point in time and you don't know what the future is going to hold. 
it creates a new set of accelerated questions. But but actually, to be fair, this is this is true of of any Web three project, even even in the early days where you would you would raise investment just on a white paper and people would dump a load of cash into your business and then it was all there. I mean, for me, I had fundamental questions as to the the ethics of that. When you raise money at a Web two startup, you you raise and tranches, and it's it's always been that way, but it works because. You raise a seed round and somebody's buying into the vision of the, the founders or they're buying into the people. You raise a series A because you've managed to prove degree of traction in AD to scale it up. And then you raise your series B because you want to go international or you want to expand. Then you're raising different allocations of money at each point of that journey. Whereas in a Web3 project, you don't do that. You go out and you say, we want to raise 30 million for this project. And you can raise it on day zero just on the back of an idea, an idea that you also know is going to be iterated on and change over the course of time. So it's a, it's a funny concept anyway in, in Web3, and it's not unique to tokenomics. I think it's it's every part of the funding journey for a Web3 business. Yeah, that's true. But in in this case in particular, like how did you decide uh, the total supply, for example? Because that uh, that's feel that feels like a science, you know. Like how how do you how do you do that? Well, to be fair, on this one, we had I'd have to pass out some of the accolades to that to the guys that we had to support on this process as well. So we had some some pretty handy advisors on the tokenomic design. But but fundamentally, if you have a limited amount of supply, then small movements make big impact. So if you have a large volume of supply, then it means that you can you can stomach a, a shift to sale of 10 tokens because it's not going to materially affect your supply. So the more you have in supply, the easier it is for you to distribute that without impacting the overall pricing mechanics of that. So that, that was fundamentally the principles that I sort of held on to through first we were building. Ah, okay. So, and how, like, how do you price it then? How do you decide the price? Because let's go back to the to what you were just saying before. If we compare tokens uh, with shares uh, of a company, let's say, um, but sh- like com- a company shares price is given by the the total evaluation, you know, overall of the company. So you know, you know more or less what you are. What's the value of the company? You can see the balance sheet uh, and you can somehow make an informed decision, uh, you know, yeah, I'm going to buy into it or not. In the case of tokenomics, uh, how do you define objectively the value? How is it getting communicated then to, to a user? There is no public balance sheet, for example, that, that you can see, right? I assume. Yeah, but and and actually, this is one of the arguments of the FCC. Actually, so the if you have a security, one of the the key services that the regulator is supposed to provide is to provide information asymmetry, so that everybody has access to the same information and can make a decision based on that information. That's the fundamentals of what the uh, the regulator is there to do. Now. You can take that and you can say, well, actually, for a blockchain project, the whole purpose of a blockchain project is that it's 
decentralized. Nobody has more information than anybody else because it's a decentralized budget. Right? You can you can go on chain and you can see the volume of transactions and the, the activity that's flowing through um, through that chain. That's the fundamentals of how it's supposed to work. So so there is supposed to be no information asymmetry in a in a Web three project. Uh, there is things that you get onto that because it's not everything works in a fully decentralized manner. But to your question, of how do you how do you put a value on on the token itself? It's very similar to what you do with the Web two business, right? So when you're valuing any startup, the number of shares that you have isn't the important point, right? By every, every business is going to start for the number of shares, and then you might go up raise your seed round for a million dollars, a million dollar valuation, two million dollar valuation, whatever it is. And then all you do is you do the mechanics afterwards to say, well, it was a two million dollar valuation. We've got eight shares and that's that share price and we're going to sell them out of those. The same is true in a in tokenomics. You have a volume of tokens in circulation that you're looking to sell and then you have a price at that particular round, round price. So the same is true. So how do you value it? Well, you've got to look at what's in the market, right? You've got to look at what you're offering and how it differentiates itself in the market. So that that dynamic, I don't think, is materially different. But as you go through the rounds and you go into the later stages, you don't know what, the, the, what your valuation might be, but you've got to hedge your guess. But even in that scenario, you, you I do have, and have done similar things with the Web2 business before where you take your cap table and you start modeling what it might look like in two rounds, three rounds, and four rounds, and it's all speculation. So, so yeah, to some extent, maybe there's not too much difference in how those two things work. Yeah, because I guess like tokenomics uh, uh, has a bad rap overall because plenty of tokens. I mean, we've seen this also recently turn out to be a scam. Whether intentionally or not, I don't think all tokens that were issued out there, you know, were intended to be a scam, but then just ended up going to zero. Maybe because it was because of the design, maybe because market condition changes, you know, whatever, right? So how do, make, do you make sure that you design a token that is sustainable yeah. and doesn't go to zero? I think some of that comes like any any business that you start up and fail, and people are aware of the risks of, of backing early stage businesses. Look what the latest numbers are, but one in ten, only one in ten, go on to be a success. So the risk always exists. The reason it's different than work three is that you're just raising much, much more money in the way you were anyway in these early stages of a business. So. If a business has taken on $10 million, $20 million, $30 million in funding, and it doesn't even yet have a product in market, and, and it's still got to hire its team, that is a lot of money to put in the hands of a business at that stage. And, and let's, let's face it, these, these businesses are not yet run. Web3 has a different catchment of people. Right? Certainly what I've seen, you have people that are Web2 literate or experienced running Web2 businesses that aren't yet into Web3. And there's reasons for both ways. It's haven't yet gone into Web3 because it's not yet mature enough sector to jump into, perhaps. And from a Web3 perspective, you might not be hiring those Web2 guys because actually maybe they're just not up to speed with what it takes to be in Web3. But the reality is, is you've got Web3 founders and management teams that are trying to handle large sums of money and they're not yet at a stage where they should be doing 
and then the, the money gets frittered away and wasted. And that, that for me, I think is more of the issue. Like if these work for businesses were raised, you know, a couple of million dollars, um, and again, speculative projects were failing, fine. Everybody's taking a chance and it's failed, but you see the size of the money and where that money's gone and you think that just doesn't cut it. Like they, they should have done better with that. So, I think, so how do you address that though? Well, actually it's, it's trying to, what you have to be having an internal debate that says, look, we'd be better off raising less this point than we were raising more but even as i say that that's a funny dynamic because you're not giving much away it's not like in the, the reason the mechanics work in a, in a web 2 business is because you don't give away more because you're taking more dilution so that's your that's your sort of point of tension we could raise more money but then we'd have to give away more of the business that tension doesn't doesn't necessarily exist in web 3 so the, the there's no reason for you not to raise as much as you possibly could it's an I don't know the answer to, but you certainly get me thinking on it. Yeah, I spent like a bit of time thinking about it. Uh, also, like uh, I read the uh, the book from for Ke- from Kier Fiona Bates regarding well, evil tokenomics. Like, yeah, yeah. That, that that little book kind of stuck with me. So, hi, Kier. Uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's kind of stuck with me. And since then, I've kind of been thinking about that. Uh, What's the difference, in your opinion, or your take, uh, between a token and a share in a company? Yeah, well, actually, again, this is where you start to understand where the regulators are coming from. Like fundamentally, a share is, is part ownership in a company, right? That's what it is. Uh, whereas token is part ownership in a network. Or, yeah, I guess that's the best way to put it. But it doesn't, it doesn't give you direct access or control over the network not necessarily from the beginning like you don't necessarily have a DAO and it's set up so it doesn't give you that direct ownership whereas a share is giving you a slice of that company and whatever that company does in the future your slice is worth something the same isn't true of a token you don't necessarily benefit from the growth of the company unless the tokens themselves are being traded and growing in value but what you what you're starting to see, or what you do see, or well, the reason I think the regulators get stuck in on this, is this convergence on the tokens have, having more attributes that look like shares. Actually, maybe you do get proceeds directly from the company in some manner. Yeah, and you can obviously create and craft that. Um, maybe you do have rights over how the the actual network within it is run because you you access to a DAO. Um, so when you get into those, I think you start to blur the lines. But from the very outset, though, it's one is ownership, part ownership of a company, and one is, I guess, it's um, part ownership of a network rather than a company itself. So they shouldn't be the same, but I can certainly see why they're getting those lines are being blurred. What do you think on our company perspective uh, is more attractive, uh, like issuing uh, shares or issuing tokens? My perspective, it's it's equity shares. The, the tokens is is such high risk. Like right now, you don't have to look far in uh, US regulatory news to to hear about the the squeeze that is happening on banking and how it's the, the, there's this, this movement to try and deban Web three projects or how the regulators pursuing lots of different projects that haven't previously been pursued and and how they're even going about that. They're not advising these businesses in for comment they're just out to try and get them and, and undermine the, the industry as a whole 
when you're in that sort of space, that's hostile, right? Like, why would you want to create an instrument that is in that hostile environment? And and if you so if you don't have the you don't have the, the requirement to do it, then I wouldn't I wouldn't pursue creating a token. I don't I think you can still get lots of the benefits and the values of running a web three business without having a token. It's just that it, it, it wants this sort of cool thing to do a sort of a badge of honor and, and over time I, I think yeah my gut feel or my hope would be you'd see less tokens being released into the market and actually more more focused energy being on the builds themselves actually yeah yeah i think that would be great to be honest well it, I, I read something about um I forget the precise name at the token it's something called uh, back in the ico project it's about the the worthless Ethereum token. And the white paper just literally described how there was no value and uh, what was going to happen with the proceeds they were going to go and buy a garden furniture and a big TV and other, all these other things, pointless, worthless things. And yet they still managed to raise some money through it. <laughs> it's just ludicrous. But these things happen when you, when you have something that's so difficult to create and do at the beginning. So if you go back to Ethereum's ICO, that was tough, right? There, there was lots of things they were trying to navigate. And then you get to a point where it's just so much more mainstream and easy, then people abuse it. That's why NFT started off as actual art and turned into pixelated drawings and nonsense, you know? It's like, it's, as soon as people, the mainstream realise there's an opportunity there, people just want to jump on and turn a quick buck. It's, and that's not unique to Web3. That just happens, you know? That's human nature, right? Yeah, I guess like greed... Is part of us, right? Opportunism, isn't it? Yeah. I want to switch topic for one second and move from uh, uh, tokenomics uh, to the metaverse. Because, uh, you know, being a CFO of uh, basically a company that enables building in the metaverse, what do you think are the economics opportunities? Uh, in the metaverse, like what sort of businesses could be could be built, and what type of economic upsides we could have there that maybe people are not necessarily looking at at the moment because the attention is elsewhere, and therefore it's a great opportunity to start. Yeah, definitely. I was on a, a panel recently where we had this this very conversation point, and it was it was really interesting actually because. With the metaverse, you have the on-chain metaverse and you have the off-chain metaverse. And I think off-chain metaverse is a, is a different catchment. Like you can still create, realize some of the benefits of, in, in an off-chain metaverse, like Roblox, Fortnite, things like that, because cause you can create experiences and you can derive some benefits from that, but there's an intermediary you're paying some money to. And that's that our web is anyway, full stop. No, no surprise. Yeah. We shouldn't sure name names. <laughs> Yeah, but it sort of, sort of worked it's at some stage in, in our life cycle, life cycle. We needed organizations to show us the way on that, and they have, and now we move to the next stage. But but for, for Web3, I think, and what, for the metaverse and on-chain experiences, you've, you're building on the blockchain, right? So what does that immediately give you? It gives you the ability to create digital assets. And that's the, that's the real assets the real use case the functionality that you got to hold on to when you think about the economies that it creates right and so the creator economy is the big one that you hear lots of people talk about this is just creators 
creating and directly benefiting from their from what they create. You know, it's, it's no rocket science to it. It happens today, but there's an intermediary. It's taking a slice. In in on chain, you won't have that. You could directly build something, create something, and you'd you'd benefit from it. sort of what the the uh, Matera token is trying to facilitate, right? So we're saying if you're a builder in a, of a metaverse experience, then build it. Um, and anything that is derived from that experience, you directly benefit. So that's that's a good thing. It's a positive. And then you have other, I guess, game economics or business models. And I think this is where it gets interesting because the metaverse at the minute is, is seen, well, what is it seen as really? Like, lots of people you can talk to, they'll, describe it as a gaming environment so if it's a gaming environment it's got to be fun but it can't be fun if it's just people try to advertise because that's not fun so you've got this this dynamic so i think you've got to build the metaverse first for gaming for for fun experiences and then after you've got that then you're bringing in users so you're bringing in volume users which means the advertisers come a lot and the advertisers are an important dynamic because the advertisers fund the this activity the games themselves don't necessarily derive enough revenue in their own right you get lots of free to play games these days make an existence out of the advertising so need the volumes you need the advertisers but from a gaming perspective i used to back in the day I used to play a game called final fantasy 7 and i remember going around i think they were called gfs or something but these creatures that you had yet and i was going around trying to get this this gf to be level 100 and honestly, this took hours, but I was, I, I didn't care. I loved it. I just wanted to do more battles and get this, this GF to level 100. But when I got it there, it was there and it was nothing, if nothing else for me, it was just a point of completion in a game that would probably otherwise not be completed. But now you can do the same thing and you can derive benefit. Right? You can go, right, I've got a level 100 GF. Who wants to buy it? And you go and sell it. I, I mean, that in itself is a, it's an economy that right you can you can trade digital assets oh that's that's a that's a good thing it's a, an exciting thing yeah i wonder like what will happen when we shift to the you know from gaming to to something else and what's this something else gonna look like yeah well we, we certainly have lots of debates and discussions internally about that but uh, you get a lot of conversation around is this going to be VR, AR, and a lot of that. And that actually, going back to the sort of misunderstanding of the metaverse, that's that's a trick. You know, that's a trick. People look at it and go, "Well, I don't believe in virtual reality taking over the world, so therefore I don't believe in the metaverse." Well, then they're not one and the same thing. Like most people access the metaverse from a, a web browser at the moment. That's super on bubbles. But as you as you move forward, I think there's there's opportunities for. Um, education and what the metaverse could mean there because we've seen that that meta advert where you've got people learning by going back in time and seeing dinosaurs firsthand and stuff like that i mean that that's just a fun and engaging way to educate yourself i think you can do the same in in industry as well you can through the concept and creation of digital twins if you can create digital twins of factories, manufacturing plants, things like that, then then maybe you can run tests on those facilities to see better ways to run. And maybe there's an environmental impact, there's a benefit of saving from being able to run these things digitally. And and that's they're, they're the sort of, I guess, the, the dry end of the stick where it's just sort of obvious utility. But then you get into the other end of the spectrum, which is the unknown and knowing, where somebody just comes up with a 
we don't want things to do in the metaverse, creates a new universe that's better than the one that we live in today, and then we want to live in it. Uh, who knows? And... Yeah. I mean, we shall see. I think it's overall very fascinating, and uh, I'm following very closely, uh, you know, the development uh, of what's happening there. Amar? We we are at the end of this conversation. It has been a pleasure having you on the show. And I want to really thank you for, for sharing your knowledge and for doing so, so generously, really. But no, it's been an absolute pleasure. Some really interesting questions. You certainly leave me with some things to think about. So thank you very much. <laughs> and for listeners, uh, we'll see you on the next episode. Bye. That's all from today's episode. Thank you so much for watching or listening. If you find this episode valuable, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel or to the Polyweb podcast on Spotify, Apple, or your favorite podcast app. It would be fantastic if you could leave us a rating, a review, or a comment, as this really helps other listeners find the show. All the resources mentioned in this episode will be linked in the description and in the show notes. See you on the next episode. And if you cannot wait until next week, you can watch this episode right here that relates to some of the things that we talk about in this episode. Bye.